All right, now it's time to take out our Bibles together. I'd encourage you to take one out yourself and turn with me to the book of Ephesians once again. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, starting in verse 7. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7 here in just a moment. If you do not have a copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to look at it in one of those pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, The main text will not be on the screens behind me, and we will be referring back to it time and time again. So just keeping it open in front of you, I think, will be most helpful as we uh, examine this text together. Today's sermon title is Parting Gifts. Now, if you know anything about me, you won't be surprised that when I hear the words parting gifts, I cannot help but think about, wouldn't you know it, Lord of the Rings. That wonderful scene in the first book, The Fellowship of the Rings, where the, the, the companions who are trying to take the ring and destroy it in the place that it was made, they come to the woods of, of Lothlorien where the elves live. And it's like a safe haven on this perilous journey. They, they've just endured some really trying times and some really dangerous things. And they come to this place where they can have rest for a couple weeks, actually. They, they stay there. They have protection. They can sleep finally without worrying about, are we going to have to wake up and fight for our lives? We know we're well protected. They receive food and care. And during this time, it, it's, it's a wonderful rest, but they can't stay. They've got to go because they're on a quest that they have, to, they have to complete. They have to go destroy this ring. And to destroy it, they've got to take it into the midst of the, the most dangerous place there is. It's a fantasy world, of course. But as they leave, the queen elf, Galadriel, she's seen as one of the most powerful beings in this fantasy world, she gives to each companion parting gifts, a gift that will help them on their journey as they try to go destroy this ring. Now, just a little sidebar. If you ever want to read what I think is the most beautiful piece of literature outside the Bible, like period, read that chapter in the Fellowship of the Ring, the Farewell to Lorien chapter, and come back and tell me if you can figure out which part is what I think is the, the most beautiful piece of literature outside the Bible in all the world. But... That's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about parting gifts. And as a great scene as that is in Lord of the Rings, here we come to a a text where Jesus gives parting gifts, or at least Paul talks about Jesus giving parting gifts to the church as he left this world. Let's see what I mean. Chapter 4 in Ephesians, starting in verse 7. We'll read down to verse 12. This is God's word through the Apostle Paul. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now I want you to notice in this text how he begins talking about Jesus' ascension. You see that in verses especially 8 and 9 and 10? 
Jesus's ascension. You can read about Jesus's ascension in Acts chapter one. After Jesus had spent his time on this earth, after he died, after the resurrection, and he spends a little bit more time with his disciples and others, Jesus, right before the eyes of the disciples, ascends up into heaven. Right? He's taken up into the clouds and he, he disappears and he leaves. And he's been gone ever since. Right now, we are living in what you might say is the final age of this earth as we know it. The church age. And it's the age in between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' second coming. Been living in that age ever since Jesus' ascension some 2,000 years ago. And it will be that age, this final age of the earth, until he returns whenever that may be. But this is Jesus' ascension that Paul is talking about. His disciples saw him go and then angels appeared and said, why do you marvel? He will return in the same way that he left. And I don't know about you, but brothers and sisters, I'm eagerly anticipating that day when he returns in the same way that he left, when every eye shall see him. And 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us there will be a trumpet sound and a great shout and the voice of an archangel, and then Christ will come on the clouds in the same way that he left. We can't wait for it, but until then, we are seeking to be faithful to his word and to his mission for us. And part of that mission is done through the gifts that he has given us. He left so that he could give these gifts to the church. Parting gifts. He told his disciples... In John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Who is that helper? In the ESV, it's a capital H, the helper. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus was telling his disciples who had spent three years with him. This is right before his his arrest and his death. He says, I have to go away, and I know you're sad. But it's to your advantage. It's for your good. Because if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. He was essentially saying to them, I've been with you. But as I am here, I can only be in one place at one time. But if I go, I will send my spirit who can be in all of you at all times, at the same time, all across the world. And ever since Jesus' ascension, the spirit has been poured out on believers, given to every believer who puts faith in Christ and is baptized into his name. And now those of us who have done that have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us constantly, every single one of us. It's to our advantage that he went away and sent the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't just the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gave when he went away. It was gifts through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave spiritual gifts to the church through the Holy Spirit, and we read about them in our text today. Now, these gifts that we read about in our text right here, though, these are different. Normally, when we read the Bible and we talk about spiritual gifts, maybe we're in a place like 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12. These are common places where Paul will list spiritual gifts that people might have. Normally, when we're talking about those spiritual gifts, we're talking about abilities, Right? Something that, that we can do for the Lord. Some people might call them talents, even though we have natural talents. These spiritual gifts are a little bit different than our natural talents. But that's normally what we're talking about. But here in this text, notice the difference. What are the gifts that Paul says Jesus gave to the church in this text? 
They're people. He gave people to the church. And we see that in verse 11. In verse 11, we're going to spend most of our time looking at verse 11 today because 11 tells us the gifts that Christ gave to the church as he departed. Now, these gifts that we find in verse 11, I'm going to be breaking up into three groups, right? There's, There's five individual things listed there, but I'm going to break them into three groups. Why? Well, because I'm a preacher and them's the rules. You, if, you, you can't have lists as a preacher if you don't have three, right? No more, no less. The number of, of the gifts shall be three. That's, that's a Monty Python joke for those of you who might get that. Now, the reason, though, is, is important. It just so happens that they divide naturally into three, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. We'll start off with a grouping of two in verse 11. Those first two, he gave the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and prophets. Now, these go together for a very specific reason, and we've already seen that reason here in the book of Ephesians twice. Look back with me in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians 2, 20, where Paul talks about the members of the household of God are built, this household of God are, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's that group built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now turn over to chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. And there it says, This mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so what's Paul talking about here when he says apostles and prophets? He's specifically talking about the scriptures. He's talking about how we have the scriptures. Now, it says he gave people, apostles and prophets. But what he's speaking of really there is how the apostles and prophets got the revelation of God and then they gave it out to us. Prophets, especially in the Old Testament, apostles, especially in the New Testament. And so when Paul says that Christ has given apostles and prophets to the church, he's talking about the men God chose to speak his words And to write them down for future generations. And the body of Christ is built on this foundation. These gifts were foundational to the church. To every true church. So he's talking about scripture. The Bible. Apostles and prophets were God's chosen men to give the church his own words. Now, one thing that we need to understand. This is not saying... This is not saying that God continues to give apostles and prophets to the church today. He does not. These are offices that ceased to exist in the first century especially. Apostles were men who were with Jesus, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and were commissioned by Jesus himself face to face to go out and speak authoritatively God's words and to do miracles in his name. There are no more apostles. If you ever hear someone coming into the church saying they're an apostle, your your red flag should go up all over the place. There are no apostles these days. Apostles were men who were with Jesus, commissioned by Jesus. And in the Old Testament, there were prophets. But prophets in the Old Testament, as they spoke God's words, were much different than somebody like, like a preacher speaking God's words today. And preachers get up and show you God's word, or at least preachers should be getting up and showing you 
the word. Here's the word. Let's all look at it together, and then let's try to explain what it means, right? But my own words are not infallible. My own words are not an inspiration directly from God. When I read the Bible, those words are, but mine are not. A prophet, on the other hand, in the Old Testament, was a man who spoke directly from God, inspired by God, and the words that he spoke, the words coming out of his mouth were God's very words. And so to not believe in those words and to not obey those words was to not believe in or obey God himself. That's much different, the Old Testament prophets, than we, we think of preachers perhaps today. And so these do not continue to exist. But the other thing that this tells us is that we are a church built on God's word. We must be a church built on God's word. Every true church is built on God's word. And you need to know that here at Columbia Christian Church. The Bible will be the foundation of everything that we do. Everything that we do. No matter where culture goes, no matter what gets popular in culture, no matter what trends come about, no matter what the the media or the government or anybody else says morality is or should be, we will be people of the word. We will be people of the Bible. We will not change. We will not compromise God's truth just to be relevant. We will not change the faith once for all given to the saints because culture is different than it was hundreds of years ago or even 50 years ago. No, God's word is where we stand. When the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we will be silent. And when we come together for worship, it is the word of God that will inform everything that we do. When we come together for worship like we're doing now, we hear the word. We preach the word. But we also pray the word. We sing the word. And we even see the word acted out in communion and baptism. It is the word of God from beginning to end. And our church follows the word of God from beginning to end. That is our rule. That is our authority and nothing else and nothing less. The word is our access to the heart and the mind of God himself. And so that is why we are so avidly and strongly committed to the word of God, because this is how we know God. And that's what we're all about. That's what we're here for. That's what eternal life is, Jesus said in John 17, 3. We are so strongly committed to this because this is where God has revealed himself. And knowing God is what it's all about. That's what we want. That's what we must be about. And without the word, we will die as a church. The minute churches start giving up the word, the minute churches start using the word instead of submitting to it, that's the first step in death, the death of a church. And so we are committed to the word because we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, those gifts that God gave, that Christ gave to the church. Now, second, the second grouping is just going to be one there. Right after he says he gave the apostles and prophets in verse 11, it says he gave the evangelists to the church. Evangelists. 
And so with the foundation of God's word, we need people to proclaim it, right? We need people to proclaim this word, to go out and proclaim it to those who do not know it, to those who do not yet believe it, and then to gather in a flock, to gather in a flock based on the truth of the gospel found in God's word. That's where evangelists come in. Now, there is a sense in which all of us are called to evangelize, right? Every single one of us are called to go and share the gospel. Whether you think you've got the spiritual gift of evangelism or not, I'm just here to tell you it doesn't matter as a Christian. Every single one of us are called to go out and take the gospel to those that we come in contact with and those in our lives and in our sphere of influence. So every single one of us are called to go out and evangelize, but some are called to give their lives to this purpose in a special way. There must be people to spread the word and to help people come to Christ and to, like we said, gather in a flock of sheep. Now, you might think of evangelists as perhaps church planters or missionaries. Those would be what we would consider evangelists, right? Somebody who's going out and they're trying to plant a church, a new church, a new work, or they're trying to be missionaries to a a people group that doesn't have the gospel or a people group that's underserved with the gospel. Billy Graham considered himself an evangelist. Y'all remember Billy Graham, right? He, He wasn't the pastor of a church. He went around sharing the gospel with as many people as he could, proclaiming the gospel to as many people as he could and trying to help people come to believe. He he saw himself as an an evangelist, and I think rightly so. Sometimes you'll hear of a church, especially around here, you'll hear of a church holding revival meetings. And who do they bring in? They're bringing in an evangelist, right? A a Billy Graham-type evangelist to come and speak and proclaim the gospel. Now, some people... Some people in some churches will equate this word evangelist with the hired senior minister. But I'm here to tell you that the, the role of senior minister involves much more than just proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. Whereas this word evangelist is really focused on that. This word evangelist is really focused on proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers where a, a senior minister has a much more pastoral role. It's not less than this, but it's, it's a lot more than this, if that makes sense. So this is not a senior minister at a church, so to speak. It's a different role than that. And so Christ gives apostles and prophets the foundation of the church. He gives evangelists to gather in a church or a flock, if you would. And then he gives the, the final two, and these two go together. I'll show you why. Shepherds and teachers. Shepherds and teachers. Now, the shepherds and teachers go together Not just because they're they're similar, but because when you read the Bible, even in the Greek, these two are not distinguished from one another like all the others are. In the Greek, and this actually comes through in the ESV, Paul will use the the definite article, the, T-H-E, he'll use that definite article to distinguish between apostles and the prophets and the evangelists. And then he gives one article, the, for shepherds and teachers. Because shepherds and teachers go together, even in the ESV, you'll see a footnote in your Bibles that says, or shepherd teachers, because this is actually one role. These shepherds and teachers is one role, and it's the role that we here at Columbia Christian call elders. Shepherd teachers, they're elders. That's what Paul is talking about here, and these shepherds and teachers are grouped together because of that. We're talking about elders. 
In the New Testament, you'll find a number of words that the, the New Testament authors use for the office of elder. It's not always elder, but it's a number of words that refer to the same thing. You'll, you'll see elder, shepherd, overseer, and even in some translations, pastor or bishop. All of those words in the New Testament refer to the same office, an elder at a church. But the real question is, what do they do? What do they do? Shepherd teachers, what, what do they do? Well, they shepherd the flock. They shepherd the flock. Every individual church is a flock of sheep, metaphorically. Flock of sheep, right? We're, we're all sheep, so to speak, and we need shepherds. And elders are shepherds who shepherd the flock. They oversee and care for the souls of those under their care. Hebrews 13.7 is especially helpful here where it talks about how they are keeping watch over our souls. Now, whose souls? Well, it's those that have placed themselves under their care. That's why we have church membership. Church membership is a way where people can voluntarily place themselves under the spiritual direction and care of the shepherds and pastors at that church. Right? It's a specific church. It's not just that. Church membership is also a way of saying, this is my church family. I'm committed to these people. Before I'm even committed to anyone else, I'm committed to these people, to walking with them and them walking with me. But when someone becomes a member of our church, not only are they saying they're committed to us, but we're saying we're committing to you. We're committing to you, especially through our shepherds, to oversee you spiritually, to care for you spiritually, to pastor you and to keep watch over your soul. But the primary way that elders do this is by teaching. The primary way that elders shepherd the flock is by teaching. Notice Titus 1 verse 9, which comes in the middle of Paul's, uh, Paul's telling, the, uh, the, telling Titus that these are the people that, that can be elders, that the qualifications, that's the word I was looking for, qualifications for elders in the book of Titus. And notice in Titus 1.9, Paul says, He, an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Right? That's part of the job of an elder. Now notice also what Jesus says in Mark 6.34. Notice the connection here in Jesus' words between shepherding and teaching. Mark 6.34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When Jesus sees a crowd of people who are like sheep without a shepherd, what does he do to shepherd them? He teaches the primary task of an elder in shepherding is teaching. In those qualifications for elders, we, we find two lists in Scripture. An elder must be this kind of person. There's a, a list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. There's a list of qualifications in Titus 1. In those qualifications for elders, there's only one skill required. One skill. And it's the ability to teach. An elder, to be an elder, must have the ability to teach. All the other qualifications are character-based. This is the kind of man this person must be. All the other, character, all the other qualifications are character-based. The one skill required is the ability to teach. So, Jesus, in parting gifts to the church, 
has given shepherds and teachers. Now, the whole idea in our text is this. The church has a foundation, the scriptures. Evangelists gather a flock together, and once a flock is gathered, that flock needs to be shepherded and built up. And that happens primarily through the teaching of God's word. That's the progression in these parting gifts that Christ gave to the church. But we also have verse 12 to deal with. Verse 11 tells us what gifts Christ gave the church. Verse 12 tells us the purpose for these gifts. The purpose for these gifts. And notice what it says. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The reason Jesus gives all of this to the church is so that the saints in the church, that's all of you, the saints in the church can be equipped to go out and do ministry. As a parent, my job is not to do everything for my kids. My job is essentially to to teach them to be able to do it for themselves, right? Some of you will remember this. Some of you are in the thick of this right now. Do you remember what it was like when your kids were just learning to tie their shoes and you got to let them do it? You got to let them struggle through it. And you're like, I could just do this right now. We could be gone, right? And, and it's going to take them five times longer to do it than, than it's going to take you. But you've got to resist sometimes. You've got to let them do it at a certain point because they've, they've got to learn. You can't just tie their shoes for them when they're 15. That, that would be weird, Right? You've got to let them learn. It's to prepare them to be able to do it themselves. The same principle applies in a church. The same principle applies in a church. Christ did not give these offices, these roles, these people as gifts to the church so that they could do everything for the church. It's to equip the church, to equip the members to go do the work of ministry. One of the things that this means is you're all ministers. You're all ministers. If you're a Christian, you're a minister. There is not one minister and then a bunch of people in the church receiving his ministry. You're all ministers according to the Bible. It is a fundamental mistake if a church thinks that they hired a minister to do all the things that they don't have time to do themselves. That's what we pay you for, pastor. No. The, The church brings in a minister To help equip the saints for the work of ministry that they are called to do. A healthy church has a number of men that they choose to lead them in pursuing God. Ministers and elders. And I'll tell you this. In scripture, every time you see elders spoken of, it's a plurality of them. It's multiple elders. It's not one elder and a lot of deacons under that one elder. It's lots of elders. It's multiple elders sharing the burden as a church. Multiple elders in those leadership positions so that one person doesn't have an outsized influence and lead the church astray. But a healthy church has a number of men they choose to lead them in pursuing God. And the task of these ministers, elders, pastors is to point the people to Jesus, and in so doing, to equip the members to do the work of ministry. And so, what we are striving for as a church, is a church full of people sharing the gospel. A church full of people visiting the sick and the lonely. 
a church full of people meeting the needs of those in crisis, a church full of people teaching and encouraging one another with the very words of God. That's what we're striving for as a church. If someone calls me this week and says, hey, John, I've got a friend who's not a believer and they want to talk to somebody about Jesus, will you do it? Well, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I love doing that stuff. But what I really want is a church full of people who don't have to make that call. They have a friend who wants to talk to somebody about Jesus and they say, well, I'm a Christian. Let's talk. Right. Because I've been trained. I've been equipped. I. I, I, I don't know it perfectly, but I, I kind of know the gospel. I know my Bible. Let's talk. Me and you right here. I'm not a minister, but I'm a Christian. Because you are a minister. Everybody's a minister, according to Scripture, to do the work of ministry. That's what it says in verse 12. We are equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. And so that's the purpose for it all. That's the purpose for the gifts. Jesus gives the gifts, and then those gifts, those people, those offices, those roles, they equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, which we'll talk much more about next week. Now, I'll end with this, verse 9. You might think verse 9 is a little uh, kind of throwaway line. In fact, in the ESV, verses 9 and 10 are actually a parenthetical insertion. It's it's just in parentheses. It's almost like a sidebar here. But I think verse 9 is extraordinarily important. Look at verse 9 with me. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Saying Jesus ascended only makes sense if he first descended. Because Jesus is not just a mere man. Jesus did not originate from down here. He originated from up there. Christ descended first. The eternal Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, descended first before he ascended. And that is the greatest news in all the world. Christ descended. Sometimes we say he condescended. He lowered himself to become like us. Philippians 2 says... He lowered himself by becoming human, by taking on flesh. He lowered himself by taking the nature of a servant. And he lowered himself even further by submitting to death. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Well, Jesus descended to us because we could not ascend to him. That's why he does it. We can't ascend to God on our own. Human beings, mankind, has been trying to do this for thousands and thousands of years. To get to God on our own. To get up there to God. And we can't. We don't have the power in and of ourselves. And so God comes down to us. He descends to us because we could not ascend to him. Every now and then you'll hear someone describe religion as a bunch of people standing on the bottom of a mountain. And trying to to get up through their own path to the top of the mountain. Everybody kind of takes a different path. And as long as you're, you're strong enough and smart enough, you can get to the top of that mountain. You can scale it. But that is not Christianity at all. The Bible tells us, yeah, there is a mountain. God is at the top of it, but we can't get up there. Craig said so wonderfully in the communion meditation today, we can't do it ourselves. So he comes down to us. 
He understands we can't do it. So he comes down to us. He meets us where we are at. Jesus descended because we could not ascend to him. It's the greatest news in all the world. He came to save us. He came to give us access to God that we could not have otherwise, that we could not get for ourselves. And then he left. And as he left, he gave us gifts so that we could carry on his mission and so that we could be strong and faithful until the end. It's a good place for us to end today. And as we end, I want to do something that we do every single week here at Columbia Christian. After our time in God's word together, we spend a few moments in silent, reflective prayer. We, we, we call on every single one of you to respond to the Lord this morning. And we don't just mean to walk an aisle. We, we all need to respond to the Lord. And so we go to him in prayer now as a way for each individual one of us to do that. Uh, who knows how the word is working on your heart. And it's probably much different today than it's working on my heart. So let's all go to God. Let's all spend just a few moments responding to the Lord in prayer. Uh, after we respond individually, silently in our seats, then we'll come back and we'll have a time of invitation. And that'll be the time where anyone who needs to respond publicly to God's word can do so. Uh, but right now, let's pray together.